It's been a tough few weeks with Jesus. A couple weeks ago, we hear these words inviting us into the fear of the Lord, wrestling with what it is to receive this God who tells us, don't be afraid, knowing that we ought to be living in the fear of the Lord. Last week, uh, we have these even more difficult words from Jesus that he did not come to bring peace, but division. This, this is Jesus telling us that he, he came to bring fire to the earth and how he wished it was already, already kindled. So we have Jesus coming to tell us to be afraid, that he's coming to set everything on fire, and then today, you hypocrites and putting people, putting people to shame is, is what Jesus does for us today. A tough few weeks <laughs> with the Prince of Peace and the one who brings us good news. Uh, I do wanna thank Father Chris for stepping in last Sunday. Um, I had a chance to go up to uh, New York City and preach to our friends at Good Shepherd. Um, I opened last week with them by telling them, you know, we are a community in Tulsa, Oklahoma that most of the people that are sitting in that room had never heard of before. They are completely unaware of sanctuary. And I'm sure most of you are completely unaware of this community, Good Shepherd. Some of you are aware. But the thing that I, I was so encouraged by is I got to stand in front of them and I said, you all have prayed prayers that we have written. And here at Sanctuary, we have prayed prayers that Good Shepherd has written. And there's something really beautiful about that to me, that we are communities halfway across the country from one another, kind of vaguely aware that we exist, but we are joining our hearts and our prayers and our petitions together. We are trying to uh, be a kind of people in the world together. And so whether you're in New York City, whether you're here in Tulsa, uh, I'm really, really grateful for these kinds of communities that we've, that we've cultivated in the world. I promise today not to go for 45 minutes, like Father Chris did last week. I know he threw me under the bus a bit, telling you all that I'm trying to like get our sermons a little shorter, a little shorter, and then he took advantage of the fact that I wasn't in the room last Sunday. I promise not to do that, not to do that today. When we think of shame, we tend to think of, of shame as being a kind of embarrassment that we feel, right? This is the mechanics of shame, how shame works in us, that for us to feel shame or to be ashamed is to be kind of overwhelmed with a kind of embarrassment. But at the heart of shame is more than just feeling guilty or feeling bad or feeling embarrassed. At the heart of shame is this issue of being disconnected and here we have Jesus who is, is in some way shaming these people who have, who have come against him, who are opposing him. They call them in the text, his opponents are ashamed. Psychologically, and, and maybe ironically, shame is, is a contagious emotion. I say ironically because, again, shame disconnects us from one another. Shame can disconnect us from ourselves. But at the very same time, as shame is disconnecting us from those around us, it's also a contagious emotion. 
psychologist Mary Lamia says that shame can be experienced as such a negative, intense emotion of self-loathing that it can lead one to disown it, that we ignore shame, we push shame aside. And in the case of people like, like bullies, this is a, a good back to school sermon today, in the case of bullies, these are people who give shame away by evoking shame in others. This is how bullies function. So kids who bully and tease can easily figure out what makes other kids ashamed because they feel it themselves and they're highly skilled at triggering that same emotion of shame in their peers. Shame is contagious. So what does it mean for us to have these kinds of encounters with God, these kinds of encounters with Jesus that leave us put to shame? What is it to encounter the risen Christ, the Prince of Peace, and to feel shame? Remember the cry of the psalmist today in Psalm 71. Thank you, John, for reading that text for us. It opened, in you, O Lord, I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. So how do we hold these things in tension today? How do we join in the cry of the psalmist who says, let me never be put to shame, and then also see that there are people in the presence of Jesus who when he shows up and when God acts, what they feel is shame. Now, we tend to think of being ashamed as being wrong, that the reason we feel shame is because we're incorrect about something. So not being ashamed means that we need to be right, means that we need to be correct. This is how we avoid shame in our lives. But in the Gospels, shame isn't juxtaposed with being right or being wrong. Shame is juxtaposed with rejoicing. Remember how our text ended, that his opponents were put to shame, but all the crowd was rejoicing in the wondrous works that God was doing. So for the crowd in the synagogue, the antidote to shame wasn't just not being wrong, the antidote to shame was seeing rightly and then rejoicing in what God was doing right in front of them. In those moments when we make people feel shame, and we've all done this, we shame other people in order to bind them up in their shame. We want them to feel that way, to recognize that they were wrong, to make them feel disconnected from the people who are right. This is all of our motivation for shame. But in the same way that, that Jesus draws us into the fear of the Lord so that we don't have to be afraid, and in the same way that Jesus sets himself against us, one who does not come to bring peace but comes to bring division, Jesus sets himself against us in order to be for us. Only Jesus can shame us in ways that actually set us free from being ashamed. Our shaming of others, it's always rooted in division. Remember, at the heart of shame is this sense of disconnection to make others feel other, 
to let them know that they're not in on what's going on. But the shame that Jesus brings is, is a mending of those divisions. It's a recognition that we have divided ourselves from the people God has called us to and the person God has called us to be. And this kind of shame is brought on by Jesus' rebuke. Remember what he says to them, you hypocrites, gentle words from Jesus today. When we think of being a hypocrite, we tend to think of this way in which we are double-minded. We think of hypocrites, or when we think about acting hypocritically, we think about saying one thing, but then doing another thing. This kind of double-mindedness. And so we think of the people, the times in our lives, when we have said that we set out to be this kind of people and we've actually gone and done this kind of thing. But that's not how hypocrisy works for Jesus. It's not how we see hypocrisy play out in the Gospels. For Jesus, hypocrisy is the failure to see God as he is present. The failure to see God and the failure to see the needs of our neighbors. This is hypocrisy. If you remember last week in the Gospel reading, Jesus says to the crowd again, you hypocrites, and the accusation that he brings this, in this text from last week is that you know how to read the weather. You know when you see a cloud rising in the sky, it's going to rain. You know when the wind blows that it's going to be hot. You know how to live by these certain kinds of techniques. You know what's going on in the world, but you don't see the needs in the neighbors that are right in front of you. That is living as a hypocrite for Jesus. This is a way that we all, say, we all tend to give our energies to the things that make us feel important but don't actually matter. It's a way of, of tending to things in our lives that we think are important, that we think deserve our time and our energy. And Jesus says, no, you're giving your time and your energy to all the wrong things. The reason you want to predict the weather is so that you can protect yourself from the elements. The reason that you want to be able to predict the weather is so that you can control the future for yourself. And that's just not the posture that Jesus invites us to live in. What he says actually matters is to be able to see when God is at work in your life and in the lives of those around you, and then to see the needs of your neighbors that you are called to tend to. This is a way of, of feeling busy without actually giving your time and your energy and your resources to things that are meaningful. This is why Jesus has to remind the crowd that this woman who has been oppressed with this illness, he has to remind them she is a daughter of Abraham. He had to say it because they couldn't see it. They're hypocrites because they can't see her for who she is. All they saw in her was her illness. All they saw in her was someone who was bound up. They couldn't see her for who she was, only what she represented to them. She represented some kind of illness, some kind of oppression, and they immediately tie it to some spiritual dimension in her life, that it was Satan who bound her up. They believed all kinds of wrong things about her. 
And we do this to ourselves. Henry Nouwen offers us these five lies of identity. That I am what I have. I am what I do. I am what other people say or think of me. I am nothing more than my worst moment. And I'm nothing less than my best moment. These are lies that we tell ourselves. And not only are these lies that we tell about ourselves, they are lies that we believe about other people, maybe more so about other people. Notice what Jesus does when he sees her. He, he sees this woman with this crippling, debilitating illness. She's bent over, she can barely walk. And what does Jesus do? He says, woman, come over here. Now, think of that. If any one of us would see someone in that kind of state, if any of you see Father Chris walk into the room in just a few minutes, because he's not much better than he was last week, none of us are gonna say, hey, Father Chris, come over here real quick. His back hurts. He's kind of hobbling from place to place. No. When we see people in that kind of pain, in that kind of discomfort, that kind of illness, our response to them is not, hey, come over here real quick. Our response is to go to them, to rush over to them because we shouldn't inconvenience them. We see the pain that they're in. We see the illness that is afflicting their bodies and we wanna go to them. Why do we do that? Because we think the most important thing about them is what they're experiencing. And we don't, wanna, we don't wanna have to engage that kind of discomfort. We would go to them. We see that they're struggling. We see that they're in pain. Moving is difficult. We would go because we reduce people to their situation. But Jesus actually calling her to himself is a way of honoring her humanity. It's a way of saying, I see what you're going through, but you are more than what you're going through. You are a person who has agency. So come, you can walk here. You can make it this far. It might hurt, it might be uncomfortable, but you can do it. He's acknowledging her humanity. She doesn't need to be treated with pity, is what Jesus is saying. This is what we see in Jesus, that he is endlessly kind, he is endlessly generous and gracious, but Jesus is not polite. He will call us to himself, even when we are in pain and in discomfort, even when that journey is uncomfortable, because we are human beings, and he sees our humanity and he recognizes that we have agency and reminding us of who we are and what we are is more important than our situation. There is a way of dealing with the oppressed, with the marginalized, with the sick that feigns compassion as pity. What the oppressed and what the marginalized and what the sick need from us is not our pity and it's not even just our presence. They need an acknowledgement of their personhood. Jesus saw her as more than her illness. Him calling her to himself is a way of saying, I know what you're really capable of. 
You don't need to be pitied. You don't need to be reduced to what ails you, what seems to be controlling your life, because that thing doesn't have the final say about you. I do, Jesus says to her. I see that you are a daughter of Abraham, even if no one else does. In our lives, we won't see every sick person healed. We know this. Even if we don't want to accept this, we won't see every sick person healed. But we can see every sick person humanly. Remember in Matthew's gospel, 25, Jesus says, I was naked and you clothed me. I was in prison and you came to me. I was sick and you took care of me. It doesn't say that you healed me or even nursed me back to health. It just says you took care of me. If healing is part of the story, that's wonderful. We hope for that and we pray for that. But our work in the world is primarily about others' humanity before it's about their healing. Of course, the irony of this story is that it's this woman who is bound by this illness, but the irony is that she's not actually the one who's bound. We see the, the response, the ruler of the synagogue and all the ways that he is bound by rules and restrictions and doing everything right. Again, he thinks that this is how he protects himself from being ashamed, by being right, by doing things appropriately, by following all the rules, enforcing all of the restrictions. And because he's so bound to rightness, he cannot celebrate this woman's liberation. He cannot celebrate the, the freedom that she experiences, that she's being given. The accusation that the ruler brings against Jesus is that he can't loose this woman who was bound because it was the Sabbath day. He chose the wrong time, the wrong day, the wrong place. And Jesus points out that these people go about tying up and loosening all kinds of other burdens. Remember what he says, that you go about tying up and untying your donkeys and you lead it to water as you know it's thirsty. But these aren't the burdens that actually matter. This is a way of, of reading the weather. This is a way of giving our energy to things that aren't the most important things. It's a way of tying up and loosening burdens that don't need to be tied and don't need to be loosed because there are people who are bound up that need freedom and liberation. Again, this is hypocrisy for Jesus. It's giving yourself to the work that you think is important, but not seeing God at work in your midst and not seeing the need in your neighbor. And so the ruler of the synagogue is so caught up in his own hypocrisy, in his own righteousness, that when Jesus sets her free, all he can think about are the rules that he thinks must be enforced. Our Old Testament text today comes from Isaiah 58. And it says, if you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil, 
If you offer food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom like the noonday. If you refrain from trampling the Sabbath, from pursuing your own interests on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, serving your own interests, or pursuing your own affairs, then you shall take delight in the Lord. This is what the ruler of the synagogue thinks he's doing. He thinks he's refraining from trampling the Sabbath. He thinks that he's engaging in maintaining the holiness of the Sabbath, following God's command, honoring it, not pursuing his own interests. But Jesus is saying to him that the real bondage is to think that the Sabbath matters more than the people for whom the Sabbath was made that the rules are more important than the people for whom God has shaped these laws. And in doing so, the ruler of the synagogue has become the one pointing the finger, the one speaking of evil. He's become bound to the burden that he has made of the Sabbath and he has placed that burden on the backs of others. And here's what's interesting, is that when Jesus heals her, There's only one person who brings an accusation, who brings a complaint against Jesus. It's one man, the leader of the synagogue. He's become indignant. He's become the one wagging his finger. He is the one who is bringing the word of evil. But by the end of the story, it's not one man who's come against Jesus. Remember what the text says, that when Jesus said this, all of his opponents were put to shame. As much as shame is contagious, oppression is contagious. This one ruler's complaint, it stirs up this whole group of opponents against Jesus. And here's what I want to hear, what I want you to hear today. We need to be weary of anyone who is more concerned with keeping all of the right rules over being a person of mercy and compassion. We need to be weary of anyone who tries to convince us that we ought to be afraid of the oppressed rather than being someone who meets the needs of their neighbors. Because oppression is contagious Fear is contagious. Shame is contagious. And if we're not careful, we will watch God set the oppressed free right in front of us, but we won't be able to see it. We won't be able to rejoice in it because we're too caught up in following the rules and enforcing regulations and doing things the right way. The good news is that as oppression is contagious, so is the loosening. This story ends, the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things he was doing, which means that this woman's healing was not just for her own sake, it was for the sake of everyone else there who witnessed it. 
That is why we have to have eyes to see what God is doing. Because it's not just for them. It's not just for the other person. God's healing in other people's lives, God's liberation in other people's lives, as much as it's for them, it is for us. It's for us to celebrate what God is doing, being able to rejoice in the loosening of those kinds of burdens. I'm almost done, but you might want to imagine this scene for just a moment because I think it matters. By the middle of this story, we've gone from Jesus healing one woman and one man voicing a complaint, this kind of intimate scene, to two crowds, the opponents and those who are rejoicing. What's happened in the midst of just a couple people has spread into the entire gathering at the synagogue. Listen, the crowd is always easy to stir up. One crowd rejoicing in their vindication that the Sabbath is for liberation. We were right. (laughs) And the other crowd is bound up by regulations and rules and rightness. And that crowd has no taste for mercy. But all of them, all of those people, if they are loosed, they can be part of a grand community celebrating God's goodness, even when it doesn't look the way they think it should. And they become loosed in the same way that this woman is loosed, by recognizing that their humanity and their identity as sons and daughters and announcing that that is the truest and most real thing about them, that they are beloved, that is how we move from opposition into rejoicing from complaints into celebration. There's a difference, I think, between a crowd cheering on a spectacle and a community being able to celebrate someone's healing alongside their humanity. God, save us from spectacle. Help us to celebrate healing and humanity. God, let us be that kind of community. Amen.